So we talk about the church and being together. But first we're going to start out with a question. How many of you like to be right? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you have spouses that like to be right? Okay. All right. I I understand that. Now, interestingly, as people, that's what we like to do, right? We want to be right. We want to think we have everything figured out. We have everything in control. Now, admittedly, some of us are a little bit worse than others at this. Um, But by and large, we all like to think we're right more often than we're wrong. So here's a couple examples, right? 86th Street in Irvindale. Okay? 86th Street. 86th Street has that center turn lane. We're all familiar with the center turn lane, right? Yes? Okay. What is the center turn lane not for? Merging into traffic. Thank you in the back. Now, here's the problem that we run into, right? As people, we like to help everybody else understand when they are wrong because we are right. So if you're like me and someone merges in on that turn lane, you will drive up next to them. Okay. And as you're next to them, you will do this. And then you will feel this presence in the passenger seat hitting you on the leg saying, Josh, stop it. (laughs) And that is your conscience or your wife telling you you don't have to be right all the time, right? Or another example is let's say you like to watch football, okay? And for some unknown reason, you're a Hawkeye fan. (laughs) And you like the Hawkeyes and you're watching the game yesterday and it's fourth and one. And you're like, all they have to do is get a stop. That is it. They get a stop, we get the ball back, we're still going to lose because we choke because we're Iowa, but we're going to get the ball back and we have a chance, right? And unfortunately, Northwestern gets first down. And you're yelling and screaming at the TV because you knew what they should have done in that situation because you have absolutely no experience in ever being a college football coach or calling a defense, but you knew that they shouldn't have done that. Or maybe you're at the game and you yelled at the top of your lungs and all the people around you are like, dude, it's getting a little bit annoying, right? We all like to be right. We all like to have that moment where we know more than other people because at our very core, that's what we desire, to be right, to know what we think we should know, and to be able to understand the things we think we should understand. Now, for me personally, this brings me back to college, and (laughs) I was a senior in high school, and I was fortunate enough to play on a very good high school football team. And that allowed me to use my God-given gifts to be successful at football my senior year in high school. And I didn't expect to play football in college. I always thought basketball was going to be my sport. But I had a good year, and I was fortunate enough to get recruited by Northwestern College. Not, not the one that beat Iowa. The NAI school up in Northwest Iowa where it smells like pigs. Um, I was fortunate enough to play at Northwestern College, right? And so after about a week of my freshman year, my head coach calls me into the office. Now, my head coach is a guy by the name of Orv Otten. Okay, and that name should just instill fear within you because it's Orv Otten, right? And Orv was a very, very no-nonsense, straightforward man. Orv had calves that could crush your head. I mean, Orv was just, he had used to been a college linebacker, right? He was just a dude that was all sorts of no riffraff kind of a guy, right? So you go into the meeting to talk about how the year is going. He goes, so how do you think the year is going? I'm like, it's good. I'm having fun, you know? And he goes, hmm. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's not the response I was hoping for. And, and he said, so do you think you're doing okay? I was like, yeah, I think I'm doing great. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you recruited me. I mean, obviously, I'm good enough to be here, right? And he says to me, well, Josh, I don't know how to say this. It's not going very well. I was like, oh, <laughs> perfect. That's fantastic. And he said, consider 
the way you are right now. I'm like, what, are we attacking the personality? Like, what is happening? And he says, you weigh 160 pounds. You can barely bench press the bar, okay? <laughs> How do you possibly expect to be able to stop someone that's 6'3", 235 running at you? And he said what will forever be known as the two most crushing, no, not the two most, six words. You are going to get broken, is exactly what he said to me, right? And see, here's the problem. I had been operating under this truth that I was good enough. I had been operating under this truth that I was good enough in high school, so that should just transfer over. That I knew better, that I knew exactly what I needed to know to be successful at football in college. And the truth was, I didn't. I had no idea what it took to be successful in college because there was something I still needed to learn. I needed to learn what it looked like to actually have the commitment and the discipline and the responsibility to work out, to learn the playbook, to do all of these things, right? So that's what we're going to talk about today is that concept of conversion, that concept of understanding there's something that you thought you knew, a truth you knew to be absolutely true, that is now all of a sudden changed, and how do you change that? So you, you have a, a concrete belief, and now you're moving towards this new belief, and this is the new truth. So what do you do about that, right? What do you do when you're trying to learn a new truth? How do you learn a new truth and apply it? So what we have here in looking at this story and this concept is we're going to look at Acts chapter 10. Now, Acts chapter 10 can be considered one of the more pivotal points of the book of Acts because it is a significant pivot in the overall mission and dis- distance and direction of the church itself. This is a moment where a much, much needed conversion takes place. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 33. I encourage you to take out your Bibles. If you don't have Bibles, please look at the screen, and we will start reading as soon as I find the right page. (laughs) Okay, here we go. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa, And bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Now about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on a roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, he replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three more times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. 
they called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs, and do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you were looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. And while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you have sent for me? And Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. This is the word of the Lord. So let's unpack this a little bit more this morning. Let's really get into this story so we can really pull out what it is we're trying to be taught here. And we're going to look at two main characters. Now we start off with a man named Cornelius in Caesarea. Cornelius was a centurion, which means that he commanded a hundred men. And he was a part of the Italian regiment. We learn that he and his family are devout and God-fearing. And he gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly. So he has this vision where an angel comes to him and tells him that his prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial before God and that he should send men to Joppa to bring back Simon, who is called Peter. This Peter then, he's told, is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel left, Cornelius called two of his servants and one devout man and sent them off to find Simon, who is called Peter. So that's one half of the story. The other half, however, is Peter. What is Peter doing? So we first find out about Peter in Acts chapter 8. He's sent to Samaria from Jerusalem by the apostles that are currently in Jerusalem. And once he's there, he sees the Samaritan Pentecost and he sees the Holy Spirit descend upon the Samaritans. Later in chapter 8, he goes back to Jerusalem and while on his way, he's speaking and preaching of the good news and what he had seen to other Samaritans in the area. Now, we don't see Peter again until chapter 9 after the conversion story of Saul, and we find him in a place called Lydda where he heals a paralytic. The next we hear about him is there's a lady by the name of Tabitha. Tabitha is in Joppa, and Tabitha has recently died, and there is an outpouring of heartfelt mourning and crying about the death of Tabitha. So the people of Joppa send two men to find Peter, to bring Peter back to Joppa. And when Peter arrives in Joppa, he sees Tabitha, and he actually raises Tabitha from the dead. He then, at the end of that story, goes to stay in the house of Simon the Tanner. So that's what brings 
the centurion and Peter. That sets the stage for both of them. Now, while the two servants and devout soldiers are on the way to find Peter, Peter goes up on the roof of the tannery to find, I'm sorry, to have a vision, right? He didn't go to have a vision. He went to pray. And while he was praying, he had a vision. Okay, let's make sure we're clear on that. Now, verse 10 tells us he became hungry. And while he was hungry, he fell into a trance and began to have a vision. Now, let me set this up a little bit for you. How many of you have ever been into a tannery before? One of you. Perfect. Okay. We're going to teach the rest of you what a tannery is like. Now, what we know to be true about Joppa is that it's on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. What we also know to be true about the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea is that it is hot at about noon. The other thing we know to be true is that a tannery contains vats of all different kinds and concentrations of acid. And these are used because they take the hides of animals, put them into the vats of acid, and the acid will burn off the hair and cure the leather. So you can imagine then the smell that's coming from this place. And Peter is up on top of this place where it smells like death, literally death, and there's acid and all this stuff happening, and Peter has this vision. He sees heavens being opened and a sheet being lifted down by four corners that has all different kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. No fish, because first of all, fish are disgusting to eat, and secondly, because fish cannot swim on a sheet. So here hungry is here Peter is hungry, right? Smelling the smells from the tannery, having this vision of all these animals being lowered down, and a voice tells Peter, get up, kill and eat. But Peter says, no. Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Now this is important to pay attention to because Peter was Jewish. And because he was Jewish meant he had some very, very specific guidelines about what he could or could not eat. Now, if you're interested in learning more about that, I invite you to do some light reading in the books of Leviticus or Deuteronomy this afternoon, if you would like to learn more about it. But the deeper issue here is not just what Peter could or could not eat, okay? This isn't like being gluten-free or not being able to eat dairy or eggs or anything like that because you might get a stomachache. This issue of not being able to eat unclean animals is a part of the Jewish law. It's what God has told them they must do to remain close to them, to him. So what that means is what they can and cannot eat is important not only to their survival, but their very identity as people. So remember, Peter's hungry and he's smelling the stench of everything coming upstairs. His stomach must be turning both from the smells that he's getting from the tannery and the thought of eating these unclean animals because all of his life he has been taught to despise these unclean animals. But now something's different, and God's telling him, no, 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 eat them. And the voice responds to Peter saying, do not call anything impure that God has made. And he tells him this three times. And after the third time, the sheet was immediately taken back up to heaven. And while Peter is sitting there pondering this, these three men show up at the gate to Simon's house, and they yell out, is Simon here? Now, as this is happening, the Spirit then tells Peter, hey, three dudes downstairs looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them wherever they ask. And Peter goes down and tells the men he is the one he's looking for, but Peter's still confused about what exactly is happening. So he says, what exactly do you need from me? Why have you come? And the men told him they came from Cornelius the centurion, that Cornelius is righteous and God-fearing. 
He's respected by Jewish people. An angel told Cornelius to ask Peter to come to Cornelius' house so they could hear what you, Peter, have to say. Then Peter invites them in to spend the night. The next day, they start off and go with the believers to Joppa. The day after that, they arrive in Caesarea, and we see that Cornelius was expecting them and called together all of his buddies. He calls together his family. He calls together his friends to hear what it is that Peter has to say. And as Peter enters the house, Cornelius falls at Peter's feet. And Peter corrects him. He says, no, 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 no. I am just a man. You do not need to bow at my feet. So he stands Peter up and they enter the house together. And Peter says to the large gathering of people, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. See, this is that turning point I referenced earlier, because something amazing has just happened. Peter, who before all of this with Cornelius, had recently healed a paralytic. Not only had Peter healed a paralytic, he had raised someone from the dead. If there's anybody that think they should know enough about the Christian faith to be good, it should be Peter. He should have no reason to think he can grow anymore because after all, the dude just raised someone from the dead. But Peter finally gets it. He finally learns what God has been challenging with. He learns what God has been challenging him to understand. The truth he had once believed that has now been replaced with a new truth. Peter has the aha moment. This whole vision wasn't about animals. This vision was about people. It was about how the Jews viewed the Gentiles. And now Peter gets it. The good news of Jesus Christ isn't reserved for the Jews. It's meant to be spread to the ends of the earth, and that includes the Gentiles. Do you see the conversion that's taking place here within Peter? Peter now understands. And first, Cornelius had to have a bit of a conversion because Cornelius fell at the feet of Peter. But Peter says, no, no, no. I am not God. Do not worship me. But Peter, on the other hand, understands a needed correction that the Gentiles are very much a part of the plan of God. See, at this time, we see the church at a crucial turning point at the end of the first century because the Jews were rejecting the gospel, which should have been theirs, and the Gentiles were overwhelmingly accepting the good news that was not originally addressed to them. The church was still very much figuring out who exactly God is and how to understand what God is doing because, remember, the Jews were the people of Israel. God brought them through the wilderness. God brought them all the way to where they ended up. And now God's telling them that actually the Gentiles are supposed to be in the family as well. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, the Jews and the Gentiles. Peter's rooftop vision of the Tanner's house is the springboard from which the Gentile mission will be launched. Peter's vision is an integral part of God's action and the work of the Holy Spirit in moving the Jewish church to accept the Gentiles. See, that's the pivotal moment. The church now understands its call. Isn't it ironic then that for Peter to learn this truth, God chooses Cornelius, a Gentile, to help him understand this. Because Peter is now in the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, the same house that he would not have been able to enter into according to his Jewish beliefs. 
God is breaking down old divisions. He's breaking down walls, barriers that Peter had known to be true all of his life, but now he's teaching him a new truth. God has declared that no person can any longer be called unclean. Therefore, Jewish Christians can freely associate with the Gentiles, especially Gentiles who have not yet heard the good news of the gospel. See, this story is not only important for the direction of the church in Acts, but it's also for us to learn from and apply as well. Because what we know to be true is that conversion is not a one-time experience. Faith, conversion, is a journey. We can never become too old, too smart, or too complete in thinking we understand and know everything about the Christian life, that we are exempt for the need for more conversion, for more truth in our life. The journey of faith, the Christian walk, is a series of journeys, pilgrimages, and excursions out into unknown territory where the only thing that we have to rely on is the very faithfulness of God. Both Peter and Cornelius experienced conversion because they both heard what God was saying to them and they acted on it. Both through the work of God and through their willingness to wrestle with what God was telling them, they were able to experience a change in their thinking, even though it might have been something they were uncomfortable with. That's what God calls us to. God doesn't call us to live a comfortable, cushy life. God calls us into the uncomfortable because it's in the uncomfortable where we learn new truth. It's in the uncomfortable where we are forced to rely on God and be stretched and grow. So may we too be willing and able and ready as people to hear God, to act upon what God is saying, and to seek to learn and apply this new truth, trusting that whatever God has planned is what is best for us. May we be people who are considerate to something that might make us uncomfortable, allowing God to teach us in moments that all we have to rely on is Him. So I leave you with two questions this morning. What is it that God might be trying to teach you? What is it that God might be trying to teach us? as a church? And second, what are we going to do about it? Let's pray. So Father, we come before you this morning so thankful that you are in control, Father. So thankful that your faithfulness endures forever. So Father, I pray in those moments where you're calling us into the uncomfortable. Father, those moments where you are calling us to step outside of what we know to be true and maybe experience or learn something new. Father, I pray that you give us strength and courage to do that. Father, open our ears to hear what it is you are saying. Father, maybe it's a, a change in our attitude towards the neighborhood we live in. Maybe it's a change in attitude towards the people in our life who may have wronged us. Father, whatever it is, I pray that we may seek conversion. Seek new truth that comes from you, and then be courageous enough to apply it and live it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.